Listen, this title says it all this morning. Take a look at this picture. This universe is not about you, and that's a really good thing. Do you see that little person standing in the lower right corner? That's us, right? And, and that's a really good thing. God provides us the perspective and the time lapse that's needed, just like this picture, to realize that, that there is a center to all history, to all the story that's going on around us, and that that center is not us. Man, that's really, really good news, and I hope you'll see that from the text today. Here's sort of the menu. Here's how we're going to go about this. I'm going to read the passage this morning, this account sort of all in one. I'm going to make a couple of opening comments, and then I'm going to give you two focal points. I hope these focal points are just yet another um, just rich layer of God's glory. And then I want to end this morning with a couple of very specific ways in which we can walk in this. Okay, so Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 13. It says this, that very day, stop, which very day? Always read the Bible in context. It's resurrection day. It's the first Easter. Remember Gria from last week preached on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the center of history? So that very day, Luke is continuing the story. It says two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking to each other about all these things that had happened. While they were walking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation you are holding with each other as you walk? If you're a circler in your Bible, circle or underline or highlight as you walk. This is really important to the story. It's easily overlooked. We're going to get back to it in just a second. It says, and they stood still looking sad. Verse 18. Then one of them named Cleopas answered, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he, Jesus, said to to them, what things? Man, these are two of the greatest words of Jesus. I know they're not often quoted, no one makes this their life first, but what things on so many levels is a great thing for Jesus to say right in this moment. And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some of our women, some women of our company, amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find the body, they came back saying they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, 
he interpreted to them in the scriptures the things concerning himself. All right. First, a couple of things along the line of reasoning to this question. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Gria said it plainly, as the scriptures tell us plainly. If that didn't happen, stop watching the live stream. Stop all this Christian nonsense. It's all utter foolishness. It hinges on the resurrection of Jesus. Let me give you a couple more lines of evidence that just leap out of this passage that aren't normally talked about. Number one is this. The death of Jesus was not done in secret. It was publicly known to have happened. And the Jewish leaders, see where they said our chiefs, uh, our, our chief priests and rulers, these two know where to pin the blame. They're the ones that turned Jesus over to the Romans for crucifixion. I bring this up because some people say this, well, the only ones who saw him or knew him uh, to be alive or died was a tiny, small group of people, and they formed this. But in fact, that's wrong. Jesus really did die, and he didn't do it in secret. In fact, it was so public knowledge, so such common knowledge, they were shocked that this person hadn't heard. You must have arrived today, stranger, if you don't know what's going on in Jerusalem. That's number one. Here's the second one. Jesus was so dead... That his followers are distraught. This smashes the theory of the swoon theory. The so-called swoon theory is Jesus didn't really die. He had all this horrific stuff done to him that no man could survive. Professional executioners killed him, but he didn't really die. That's the theory. Jesus was so dead that his followers are distraught. Why? Because death is irreversible. Dead people don't live. It's over. They saw him die. Their hope died along with Jesus. How about this? Number three. Again, it's reported by these two. They're they're reaffirming what what Luke said in in the account last week that we looked at, that women were the star eyewitnesses. This is a foolish move in first century Palestine to start a big hoax, unless this is just how it actually happened. Number four, in appearing to these two, and we're going to look at more appearances in the week ahead. Jesus didn't just appear to a few, but in appearing to these two, Jesus is not seen limping, bloodied, or half dead. Jesus is alive, resurrected, victorious, and clearly and playfully cognizant of what's going on. He seems to be really enjoying, actually, his new resurrected body. What does Jesus do? The same thing he did when he was alive, being mighty in word and deed, going around doing good and healing people. So we're going to see that in the days ahead, too. Finally, and this this goes along with what Gria said last week, these two are changed dramatically. After walking seven miles back home, by the way, to get our head around seven miles today, I'm standing at Neighborhood Bible Church right now. If I had a hankering for Dulce Espacio, some of the best gelato in our area, that resides in Main Street of downtown Los Gatos. Okay, you might go to Great Bear Coffee or the Apple Store or something else. But if I were to get there by walking, I Googled it. I'm trusting Google here. It would take exactly seven miles to leave here and walk there. And some of you go, well, that's not that far. That's because you're used to driving. It would be about a two plus hour, two hour, 15 minute walk or so to walk to go to there. So that's seven miles. Now here's the thing. These guys are 
go all the way to Emmaus, uh, they will eventually recognize Jesus and head straight back to Jerusalem. Do the math, that's well on their way to a marathon. This seems to line up with news that filled their body with adrenaline and said, we have to get back to tell the others what we just experienced. So change disciples is just yet another picture of the risen Jesus. So the hits just keep on coming. Jesus really rose from the dead, and the evidence from all points keep screaming this to us. All right. It's so telling to see how Jesus trains up these disciples. And we're left with the same mission. Jesus says, make disciples and teach them to obey all I've commanded. So how does Jesus make disciples? How does he teach them to obey all he's commanded? We're going to look at the curriculum in a moment, but first I want to look at the classroom. I think in this passage, it's easy to jump right to the curriculum. And that last line I read this morning, but actually the where and the when and the how of Jesus' teaching might be just as significant as the what. And if we jump right to content without considering the broader context, man, we just miss so much. So what's the classroom? What is the classroom Jesus uses? It's the ever-changing scenery of a three-mile-per-hour, seven-mile walk. That's what it is. It's the whole world, really. So let's talk about walking for a moment. I want you to celebrate walking today. And I want you to do it because I I see it in the scriptures. In fact, I would say this. There's power in the pedestrian. What does the word pedestrian mean? It means literally going on foot, right? A pedestrian bridge. But it also means lacking excitement, dull. Oh, that's so pedestrian, right? Easy to overlook. There's actually power in both aspects of these. And if you look carefully at Jesus and remember his teaching, you'll see that many people then and now miss Jesus because he's just so pedestrian. People are looking for a show. People are in their minds. They imagine it so very differently. So surely it couldn't be this carpenter from Nazareth. Surely it couldn't be this Bible that my grandma gave me when I was a kid. It couldn't all be sitting right there. Look again, there's power in the pedestrian. Today I hope you'll be cognizant of your walking. Walking is actually a magical experience that happens every day for most of us. It goes on all the time without much thought and frankly without much appreciation. A whole little side sermon would be this. That is until it's taken away. If you've ever lost your mobility for a season or if you've ever become paralyzed and you don't have that power, man, you just marvel at how easily people move about and don't appreciate all that goes into that. I'm increasingly seeing that walking is a key part of my life of faith. It's part spiritual formation, and it's becoming for me part spiritual discipline to physically walk with God. God's classroom is this whole world, and walking in it is wildly instructive. I love all kinds of other modes of transportation. I looked at my shoe collection one time. I don't have many pairs of regular everyday dress shoes or sport shoes, but, but, but sport shoes 
they, they kind of line up. I have lots of different things because I like lots of different modes of transportation. Walking is by far the most pedestrian, right? It's the most dull. It's the least exciting and least adrenaline filling, but it's so powerful. Um, I'm just finishing up a book by one of my favorite authors. He used to be a pastor. His name's Mark Buchanan. And the book is simply called God Walk. I started this, I think, over Christmas break, and it's so great. It just, it just pulls together these threads of some different things. And he points out how often walking is mentioned in the Bible, and he puts forward that maybe walking with God is meant to be understood as more than metaphorical. He supposes that maybe God is a three-mile-per-hour God and that he walks at that pace. If you want to just sort of jot down a good summary, someone put this in the, in the live chat for me. Acts 10.38. Acts 10.38 is a great little summary for the life of Jesus. Here's what it says. And you know that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Then Jesus went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And that's a great little summary of the life of Jesus, isn't it? He went around doing good. Here's the question. How did he get around? He walked. He walked. Now, there were other options available, right? There's an occasion where he takes a donkey, right? But it's so noteworthy. It's actually so different, and it's actually symbolic and prophetic um, that that it's written down. But Jesus walked. He moved at about three miles per hour. If you track geographically where Jesus went in all the Gospels, it's really inefficient. It creates a crazy picture. And Jesus invites us to do the same. In fact, Jesus was teaching us how to live this human life. Think about these sort of like a quick compilation of walking in the Bible. Follow me. Walk with me. God's given us good works so that we can what? Walk in them, it says. We are called. No, I would say we are commanded to walk out our faith and doctrines. Not just to know them, not just to speak them or believe them or argue about them, but to walk in them. This walking started a really long time ago, like really long ago, as in Genesis, in the beginning, we see God walking in that garden paradise in the cool of the day. And presumably, he walked with our first parents, Adam and Eve, until Adam and Eve started a different activity called running, right? Running and hiding. And then God calls out to them. If you look in Genesis, walking with God is synonymous with holiness. See Noah, see Enoch, who walked with God. How about Micah 6, 6 through 8? What does God require of you? Micah kind of goes through these other options, and he lands on this. He says, love mercy, do justly, and what? Walk humbly with God. What a great summary. Lastly, the way is how we see the term for Christians early on. Christianity was known as the way, right? Here's what's interesting. It wasn't known as the principle. It wasn't known as the doctrine or the truth or the building or the classroom. It was known as the way. Sort of gives us indication that that what Christ left was not a set of doctrines to master, but a path to travel. The text today is about walking disciples. In fact, walking disciples with Jesus And while on the one hand it's about some early disciples, it's also about us disciples. They are walking and talking together, 
And God is in this. God is working for their good and his glory in this simple traveling method of getting back home. So these two, Cleopas and his companions, never identified who the other one is, are deeply disillusioned and disappointed with Jesus. And if their faces weren't enough to show it, their words reveal their heart. Look back at verse 21 right now for a second. He's describing the things going on. Jesus goes, what things? Well, these things. They start to talk about it. And verse 21, he says, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Do you hear it? There's the disappointment. There's the disillusionment. Past tense, hoped that he was. Game, set, match. It's over. We're going home. Again, this death was so final. They know what happens when people die. It's over. So they're disappointed. Don't miss this. Jesus walks with the disciples in their pain. Jesus is there. He comes alongside them and walks with disciples in their pain. Oh, that's so good. Marvel with me for a moment at how Jesus serves these two disciples. Why doesn't he just come up and say, surprise, (laughs) huh, risen, right, like it's me, he doesn't do that, in fact, he could have come up and said, by the way, you're going the wrong way, you're going to want to like flip it, turn around and get back to Jerusalem, because that's where all the others are that you're going to want to tell this news to, that's where all the action is, he doesn't do it, Jesus does something different, Why do you think he sidles up to them, joins them in where they are going, and remains hidden? Why does he act, next week, Andres will look at this, why does he act like he's going farther on once they arrive at Emmaus? And they plead with him, no, no, stay with us. Jesus asks questions when I'm sure what these two would love are answers, Jesus stays silent while they do all the talking. By the way, can you imagine being the guy who's recorded for all of history, who is explaining the crucifixion of Jesus to Jesus? That's pretty awesome. Jesus leaves them in their disappointment and their confusion instead of immediately snatching them out of it. I mean, he could have, with a word, with a demonstration, he could have immediately removed the cloud of frustration and confusion that surrounds these two. Catch this. Jesus walks with them in the wrong direction, apparently. Away from the others who they'll want to tell. Away from where the action is. Away from where they're eventually going to end up anyways. And as a Silicon Valley-born person... I go, isn't this all so inefficient? Isn't this such a waste? Apparently not. Here's the short answer before I give some more. The short answer is this. Jesus has a plan in all of this. He's in cahoots with the Father and the Holy Spirit, the other two persons of the Godhead, and I don't pretend to know what that plan is. There's a mystery and a way of working that God is so much higher than us. 
That being said, I do have some clues and I want to point them out to you and maybe you can add to it. But Jesus is into the slow and the unspectacular, the pedestrian, the dull, the things that go right by everyone else's notice. So if Jesus is pedestrian and we're called to walk with him, what can we learn? Remember seeds and yeast? Seeds and yeast. Jesus shows from creation that God not only has a plan, but that God has a pace. We see from a simple redwood tree or a pinch of yeast that all that's needed for like pervasive growth, even exponential growth, is a simple ingredient called time. Plant a seed, pinch the yeast, give it time, and it pervades and goes through everything else. Seven miles at three miles per hour. Again, that's a little over a two-hour walk. And apparently you look at this and say, maybe there was some time needed for this conversation. Their whole worldview about who they thought Jesus would be, what they thought God was up to, what they thought was happening, has just been shattered. And so some time is needed to process. Walking is so slow and so routine that you can multitask. I know some of you do this on the freeway. You're brushing your teeth. You're eating your thing. You're walking your phone. All this stuff. You shouldn't. (laughs) Drive your car. I'm a cyclist. Please don't kill me. But walking is so slow that you can multitask. It gives you time to think. Time to ponder. Time to just reflect. Time to articulate and say out loud what's going on in your life a little bit to work things out. All of this while being physically engaged. We all know how our bodies and our minds and our souls and emotions, all these things work together. We are not disembodied souls. God works all of it together. Blood is pumping. Scenery is changing. Jesus walks with them in their hurt, but he doesn't just walk with them in their hurt. He draws them out. Man, like a good teacher, he asks a really great open-ended question, and then he just listens. Parents, youth workers, just disciplers, employ this. Ask a really good open-ended question, and then just stop talking. Be really present. Practice active listening, like really getting. They are drawn out by Jesus's question. Isn't it powerful when you're asked a great question, and you're forced to say out loud what's going on inside of you? And they don't just get the facts or sort of the hazy early news reports about the women saying he was there and there's angels and he might be gone and other people went, but it actually draws out their hopes and dreams that are kind of shattered. Now, this isn't explicit, but it seems that Jesus is leading them into a deeper commitment, the kind of commitment that it takes to be a Christian for a lifetime and not fall away. How easy it would have been to just say, it's me, do you believe it, check the card, boom, and he's off to the next people. That's the efficient way of making disciples. That's the efficient way of getting decisions. Jesus doesn't want decisions. He doesn't want an easy believism flock. And so he takes the time in love with these two to draw them into a deeper conversation. You know, Luke includes this walk not as a link to the main events, but as a main part of the story. Just do this. Just look in your Bible and find the section that talks about the death, 
the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, and then the passage on the road to Emmaus. They're about equal in my Bible. The death, burial, and resurrection, we talk about that all the time here. Almost every week we say that exact phrasing. So this journey, this in-between appointments, isn't just a little link side part of it. It's a huge part of it. In fact, Jesus does uh, quite a bit of his ministry, healing and doing good, on the way from here to there in his coming and going from place to place between the appointments. In fact, I would say it this way. Jesus uses the required slowness and routines of being a human being, like walking and eating and waiting, to do some of his best good and his most potent healing. 1 John 2.6 says it quite simply, whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Think about it this week. Think about the power of walking beyond metaphor. Let me close with a story and then we'll move on to the curriculum part of it. Uh, If you're on the phone with me during sort of work hours, there's a really good chance I'm walking. I tend to do just laps around this building over and over and over. And if you come and meet with me, there's a good chance you and I will go walking in in our meeting. I've been doing this for quite a long time. I invited a friend who was struggling in his marriage to just such a walk. And we set out in the morning. And literally before we could get like out to the sidewalk out here and hang a right, just as we did, before we could get into his story, we passed this stranger and got into his story. Here's how it happened. We walked by and I said, hey, how's it going? And we just kind of like passed by this person. Not great came the answer kind of from behind me. So I thought, maybe I should engage with that. I said, oh, how's that? And this stranger begins to spill his deep failings about his relationships, and particularly his relationship to his longtime girlfriend that he was this close to losing. And he said, and she's a really good woman, and I don't want to lose her. What two of the three of us in that conversation understood was this, that the story the stranger had just told was identical in so many ways to the story of my friend that I was about to take walking. He had come to save his marriage. He, the stranger was there to save his relationship with, with the girlfriend. The timing, the details, the response to conflict that both of these men shared, and the desperation of that exact moment. As we're walking along in this Holy Spirit-infused moment, I turned to my friend and I said, hey, what do you think he ought to do? You know what the friend did? He went on to articulate all of the biblical truth that I was about to lay on him. (laughs) Just reminding him of this world we live in, this God that we serve, the beauty of relationship, and ways to get restored. He said it perfectly. And before we even got to the light near Sprouts, we are praying over this man together. It was an absolutely holy moment. God was with us on our walk. 
He had the answers that we needed right there in his classroom. All it took was going and taking a walk and being attentive to the teacher. The way that story concludes, by the way, we we walked for a good 30 seconds, maybe a minute in complete silence. I mean, the meeting was over. That's, that was the meeting. God had orchestrated something really powerful. All right, so now about the curriculum. That's the classroom. Now about the curriculum. Jesus lays out a huge surprise. It's all right there in your Bibles. That thing you've had every day, and probably as good Jewish boys from Jerusalem or the surrounding area, you've looked at it every day. You've been taught it every day. The answers are all right there. Here's what I want you to do. If you have a digital version, this is really hard. But if you have a physical Bible, I want you to find Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The start of the New Testament, okay? Physically open your Bible and hold it open. I really should have had a physical Bible. Here's my Bible, by the way, today. It's a little hard to do this on an iPad. But I want you to open, I want you to find the start of the New Testament. What you'll do is this. You'll see that to the left, in your left hand of your Bible, is about two-thirds of the Bible. The Bible is a library of 66 books. So two-thirds of the library is in your left hand. That's the Old Testament. One-third of it is in your right hand. That's the New Testament. If you are intimidated or annoyed or confused with what you struggle to read in what's in your left hand, the Old Testament, let me tell you this clearly. You are not alone. You're not alone. Today is going to absolutely help. I play with people all the time. Don't ignore two-thirds of the library. Don't ignore two-thirds of God's eternal word that he has seen fit to bring through the ages to put into your hands. Don't ignore that two-thirds. Would you agree that most of life is sort of seen through like a Vaseline lens? Like there's so many times in life that if, if we were looking through a glass, we would want to wipe it. We want to clean it. And say, I just wish I could see a little bit more clearly what's going on. Many of our prayers are like that. It's like a puzzle with no box top, or if the box top's there, someone smeared it all together, and you try to see it from different angles, but it's not quite clear enough for your liking. Let's walk quickly through some people. Abraham, he is told to go for a walk right? He's told to go for a walk with no clear, glorious, big picture. That from this move, Abram, I'm going to turn you in Abraham. I'm going to form a nation. I'm going to birth a savior from your line, and I'm going to save the entire world. God doesn't tell him that. How about Noah? Noah is told to get work building something which had never been built in preparation for an event that had never yet occurred. Go and start doing this, Noah. How about Paul in the New Testament? Paul's basically told by the risen Jesus, knock it off, get to Damascus. You're blind, by the way. And I'll tell you what to do once you get there. Switch jerseys, Paul. You're on the wrong team. Disciples, post-resurrection. You know what Jesus tells them? He says, wait here. Wait here until you're going to get a helper. You'll see. You won't miss it. And then you'll get to go through all the world. Not a whole lot of details are given to us in life. These two on the road to Emmaus are given the key to understanding the Old Testament. In fact, they are the first to hear the complete picture, the more complete picture. Why? Because the risen Jesus was required for understanding it. 
I mean, Noah's in the boat going, oh, I totally get it. This is why such a big boat, right? I mean, as we look back on life, we can say that. Same with the risen Jesus. By the way, these two were the first to give in what Christians have today. The answer key to the Old Testament. A New Testament lens with which to read the Old Testament passages. It's like an advanced copy from Jesus. So what's the Jesus answer key? It's this, okay? Jesus answer key. It's that all roads of every text lead to Jesus. All roads of every text lead to Jesus. So if you haven't found Jesus in the story, in the text, in the law, keep looking. That's the Jesus answer key. So from this passage, we have new motivation to read the Old Testament. Why? Because Jesus is there. We're in love with Jesus. He's amazing to be around. He's all through the Old Testament. So that's new motivation to go and dig for it. But we also have a new means for understanding the Old Testament, and that is that it points to Jesus. It's about him. It's centered on him. So the classroom is the world. Go and walk in it. Don't just blitz through it at 70 miles per hour. I'm being generous. Some of you are way over 70. The curriculum is the Bible. And in this passage specifically, it's the Old Testament. What's the Bible Jesus read? It's that two-thirds in your left hand. That's the scriptures in his day and age. But this applies to the New Testament as well. Okay, so here's here's the principle. Is read the Bible... With Jesus as the center and the circumference of all that you read. So, look at this picture again. My, my title picture. Um, with a little bit of help and perspective, we can clearly see that we're not the center, right? But this is really hard on our own in real time. I mean, doesn't it appear that the sun revolves around us? That the stars, if we were patient enough, revolve around us. So it is with the Bible. It makes a massive difference to understanding it and having motivation to read it and what you're supposed to get out of it if you understand that you aren't the star of the Bible. The flesh screams, it's all about me like a kindergartner. God says, no, it's not. And trust me, that's a really, really good thing. Look at verse 25. It says, And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Do you see why he needed a walk? That took some time. Beginning with Moses, what does that mean? It's the first five books of the Bible. Going on through the prophets, this is sort of code for the Old Testament. So don't just keep Jesus in mind while you read the Old Testament. Keep him at the very frontal lobes of your mind all the time. The glory of God is in the details of the text. I'm motivated to keep feeding you God's word, not just themes of God's word or teaching from God's word, but to actually show you the glories in the texts themselves. I want you to walk among the wonders of God's unsurpassing glory as seen in creation and as seen in the Holy Scriptures. 
The more you study both of these, the more you marvel at the intricate, no way is that possible, design and fit and, and wonderfulness of it all. God thought this all up and he spoke it into existence. All right, you ever come across something on the internet? You're like, oh, someone's guilty of being awesome. I found one of those uh, today, uh, this week. I was just kind of glancing. I was trying to say, I think I Googled maybe like Jesus in the Old Testament. Pull this up full screen and just take a look at this for a second. What this is, is it's showing directly down the middle how Moses, the prince of Egypt, is an archetype pointing to Jesus, the prince of peace. Just as Mount Sinai was there and, and that... Um, um, the the stick was was lifted up. Um, so so the so the, the the cross is lifted up. All who look to Jesus will be saved. Um, man, as you as you go on, uh, Moses was kind of this this first um, shepherd um, that leads to the promised land. Jesus is the shepherd of our souls that leads to all of heaven. Um, we have the crossing of the Red Sea and freedom to slavery. We have baptism in the Jordan and freedom to sin. This is just sort of this, this little depiction that shows some really incredible things. Now, I don't know if this is what this was, but this would be kind of a cool placemat, wouldn't it? Like just have a, a placemat of this, and you could actually make an entire series of placemats. You can just rotate these through and find these little things where you go, oh, that's totally talking about Jesus. The Old Testament makes sense in Jesus. Let me give you just a couple. Jesus is the offspring of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. Jesus is the ark that protects the faithful remnant from judgment. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the blessings that are promised to Abraham. Jesus is the greater Isaac. Remember Isaac, um, the beloved son who was offered up as a sacrifice, but for God the Father, there was no substitute ram. Why? Because Jesus was that sacrificial lamb. If the first one in the Old Testament was, this is just a drill, in the, in the New Testament, it's this, this is the real thing. Finally, Jesus is the greater Joseph, whose betrayal and suffering by his own kin lead to the salvation and provision of all who would come to him and be cared for and fed. By the way, I've not even left Genesis yet. Jesus is woven all through the Old Testament. Remember Jesus' very first sermon? What did he do? He did what he said a lot. He fulfills Old Testament prophecy. His first sermon, he pulls the scrolls containing Isaiah chapter 61. The story is found in Luke 4, starting in verse 18, where he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's quoting Isaiah. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight for the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now catch this. He rolls up the scroll, gives it back to the attendant, thank you very much, and then he sits down. <laughs> it says all the eyes of everyone in the synagogue are on him. What's he going to say to this? Here's what he says. He says, today, this Old Testament scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus claimed to fulfill prophecy while he was here. 
If there was ever a conversation in all of Scripture I'd love to be a part of, I think it would be the seven-mile journey with these two, if I could just kind of sneak in and sidle up next to them and hear what Jesus was talking about. This would be such a good one. What's Jesus doing? He's shedding light on what is very clearly there, but has never been seen before. Why hasn't it been seen? Because of the Vaseline. There's a haze to it. We don't quite understand the Messiah. But the risen Jesus brings all of these aha moments together. You know, talk about the ultimate community group with the ultimate community group leader. Man, this is it. Jesus helping us figure it out. I think the Old Testament is ignored or at most tolerated by many Christians because flat out there are just some obstacles to it. I grew up going to church and I learned about the stories of the Bible, but most of the time I took it as things to do or things to avoid doing. So from Adam and Eve, um, I learned to hate apples, right? No, I'm just kidding. That's not really what I learned. Um, What I learned from Adam and Eve might be to avoid temptation, right? How about Abraham? Abraham taught me to trust God in testing. Samson was one of my favorite. Samson taught me to fight for God in his strength. And David taught me to courageously stare down my giants. And Daniel, I should live out God's truth even when I'm faced with certain death at the teeth of dining lions, right? This is sort of how I interpreted things. I learned a series of life lessons. It contained heroes and villains to either emulate and be like or avoid and not be like. My understanding of Jesus in the Old Testament, particularly as I was growing up in the church, was that he was found in some obscure prophecies. He was predicted his birth, death, life, and resurrection. But outside those prophecies, he was nowhere to be found. Hear me. I was flat out wrong. Now, I don't mean to say that my teachers didn't do a great job. They may have done an amazing job. But it's not how it landed on me. My error is really good news. Maybe you've read the Old Testament or understood the Old Testament like that. Here's the key. There aren't heroes, plural, in the Old Testament. There's a hero. It's God. God is the hero in the Old Testament. All we really see are deeply flawed, regular people who repeatedly need to be rescued out of their sin. And I can identify with that. They're not just rescued, though. They're healed. They're restored. They're set upon the rock by the hero of the Bible, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That's the hero of history and the Bible. If you read the Bible with a me-centered, man-centered lens, with you as the starring role, you will either veer off into pride, oh yeah, All those things I've kept from when I was a young kid. I've done all those things. I've mastered all the principles. I was the Daniel of the year in my youth group, right? It will lead to these weird places or it will lead to utter hopelessness. Be willing to trust God in the midst of lions? Man, I can't even go to my in-laws without opening my mouth to be a tiny bit courageous for Jesus. How could I ever measure up? Here's the great news. The great news is the Bible takes great pains to show regular, ordinary people. What's more, regular, ordinary groups of people who keep missing it and messing up and need to humble themselves before an almighty God who saves them.
Isn't that the gospel message? So read the Old Testament with a gospel lens. That's what Jesus is teaching us to do here. The new era is here. Act one is done, and act two in this scene is happening right now on the road to Emmaus. The risen Jesus just sort of is wiping away this hazy lens to the mysterious ways of God. I wrap up very quickly with this. It doesn't just matter how you read it, but that you read it. Stick with the curriculum. Jesus took them to the scriptures because he trusted the scriptures to do their powerful work. Follow Jesus in this. Jesus walked with those he loved. Man, there's no substitute for patient presence with those you are discipling. But he didn't just walk with them. They don't just wander the classroom unaware. He leans on the curriculum. A resurrected Jesus wasn't even enough for people to see the big picture. An explanation was vital. And here's what's powerful. It was all there, written down. God had gone on record centuries before saying, this is what's going to happen. This is what's going to happen. This is what's going to happen. And Jesus comes on the scene and ties it all together. Guess what? It's still there. God is still on record for us to find out what's happening. In two weeks, we're going to get to this key idea that Jesus appears to other disciples and it says he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Man, it's not enough just to have the Jesus answer key. We need a touch from Jesus himself. So how do we apply this? Four actions, you pick the one that's best for you. Number one, invite God into all of your day. Not just the appointments, but the in-between appointment times. Here's the truth. He's already present. So maybe a different way of phrasing it is this. God, would you help me to grow in my awareness and listening for your leading? Here's number two. Take a walk with God this week. Maybe unplug. Don't try to get work done. Simply take a walk with God. Could it be that God still moves at three miles per hour? Maybe you slow your pace, not just so your soul can catch up, but so you can sidle up next to the three mile per hour God. It could be a living expression of Psalm 4610, which says, be still and know that I am God. Just schedule a walk with God this week. Number three, in your meeting with others, whether you're helping them or they're helping you or that's all going on all at once, walk. It's free. It's healthy. It's accessible to almost all of us. And it reminds us that Christianity is a way. It's a path to travel. Last one. Read the Old Testament with Jesus as the center and circumference. I have two resources I want to show you. Long story short is the curriculum we use at this church. It's a family devotional we give to to all of our families. If you don't have one yet because you're new with us, contact us. We will get you one. Do you know what attracted us to this? This book takes you through the Old Testament, and it always points you to Jesus. Where's Jesus in this text? We are training our children and training ourselves to see Jesus in the Old Testament. The second resource is by a woman named Nancy Guthrie awesome reference. It's simply called Discovering Jesus in the Old Testament. 
And she just goes through and takes a little passage each day, grabs a little bit from Exodus, and points on to how this relates to Jesus. So those are some resources that might be of help. Let me pray. Father, thank you for walking with us. God, I pray today that at the end of our night, we would be grateful that we are able to propel ourselves under our own power to go and do the things we need to do. God, I pray you'd be gracious to us to be mindful that you are working in our travel, in our in-between appointments, even just in our simple act of walking, the slowness, the steadiness, how unspectacular it is. God, we're so distracted. We're so impressed by little fireworks that don't really matter. They don't change the world. God, thank you for walking with us. God, thank you for this text. Thank you for for showing us how to understand and read the Old Testament. God, we love you for all of your goodness and your glory. In Jesus' name.